0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live missionary discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me today in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit.
1: Hey, good morning, everyone. Hoping that you are having a very, very blessed weekend.
0: You can catch The Bridge Builder Show each Saturday here on Relevant Radio, AM 1330 at 11 a.m., but you can also catch up on past episodes online through our podcast. Visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find us on your favorite podcast apps such as SoundCloud, iTunes, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We've got a great show for you this week. We bring you another interesting interview on one of the major issues affecting how we live faith in the public arena, and we'll also answer your questions through the mailbag segment. Today we're going to be talking about wage theft legislation that was recently passed in Minnesota and what that means and why the church supported it. And then finally, in our bricklayer segment, we will provide a practical way in which you can bring your faith into public life. Today we're joined on the line by Dr. Jennifer Roback-Morse, the founder and president of the Ruth Institute, a global nonprofit that defends the family at home and in the public square. Dr. Morse has a passion for helping people tell their stories uh, who have been victims and survivors of the consequences of the sexual revolution. Today we're speaking with her about her book, The Sexual State, how elite ideologies are destroying lives and why the church was right all along. Dr. Morse, good morning. It's great to be with you.
2: Oh, Jason, very nice to talk with you.
0: You're one of the most compelling voices on questions of the family in the public square today. And and oftentimes we hear from people, if you don't want an abortion, don't get one. If you don't want a sex change, don't get one. If you don't want to use contraception, don't use it. And if you don't want to engage in assisted suicide, well, then don't. But you, your book and writing uh, helps us overcome this what you might called college dorm libertarianism to show that there really is something <laughs> called a sexual state. So, what does that mean? Tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Well, the, the the theme of the sexual state is that the sexual revolution is not simply a cultural phenomenon, like something that swept in off the Gulf or a, or a storm that blew in out of the Arctic, like it ha- had no human. Um, uh, action behind it or volition behind it. The sexual revolution has always been a top-down project of elites, whether they're uh, rich people or powerful people or academics or, uh, you know, just just people with an outsized social and economic influence and culture uh, have created this world that we're now living in. And they created it because they wanted it, And they used the government to do it because they couldn't do it any other way. Normal people didn't want this, you know, and and people can see it in our day now. You know, if you ask yourself, well, where is the demand for uh, sex change operations coming from? Where is the demand for transgender education in the schools coming from? Is there is there some kind of upswelling of demand from the people saying, gosh, we really need this? Anybody who's paying the slightest bit of attention knows that this is all coming from the top down. It's coming from major corporations. It's coming from very well-funded foundations, and it's being enforced by the state. So if you ask yourself the question, is, that, is, this, a, is this the way – is this brand new? This is the method by which it happens? If you look back, you will see every single serious plank of the sexual revolution has that same structure – Ordinary people did not demand abortion on demand. I mean, that's just not the case at all. Um, and ordinary people did not demand no-fault divorce. You know, all of these things that we that we now see created the legal and social structure that allows the sexual revolution to go forward. Um, that was all constructed from the top down. And so that's why I call it the sexual state. And at the time I wrote this book and, and started— really thinking about these ideas i had never heard the term deep state you know that's a that's a relatively new term the, you know the idea that that uh, the, the things you see on the surface of the government are not the whole of the structure that's con- controlling us um I, I i think one can say that there's a sexual deep state also um uh, that that goes beyond the formal structures of government but the formal structures of government are are powerful enough as it is
0: what are the elite ideologies in a nutshell that guide the sexual state? That's the subtitle to your book. So share a little bit with our listeners about what those ideologies are.
2: Yes, yes, yes. The, the I I break the sexual revolution down into three component parts and I, and I find that it's easier to do this because when we look out at the scene of the sexual revolution a lot of times we feel overwhelmed because it feels like we're we're being um harangued from all sides and barraged from all sides about all kinds of, of different things that seem like anarchy. But if, if you break it down, it comes into three different categories, and, and everything can go into it at least one of these categories. The first idea um, is, the, is the idea that a good and decent society should do everything possible to separate sex from babies, that guilt-free, child-free sex is an entitlement that idea I call the contraceptive ideology. Okay, so that's point one. The contraceptive ideology separates sex from babies as the social ideal. Second idea is to separate sex and babies both from marriage. So a good and decent society should tell everybody you can have as much sex as you want with anybody you want. You don't have to be married. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to be married to that person, I, and um, and you don't have to be married in order to have a child, in order to have children. Okay, I call that the divorce ideology, because what it's really saying is that kids don't really need their parents. And whatever we do is perfectly okay. You know, somehow that connection between sex permanence and and babies, we we can throw that out and it will all be good. So that's the contraceptive ideology, the divorce ideology. And the third one uh, I call the gender ideology, and that's the idea that the sex of the body is unimportant. It's socially constructed, and we can overwrite the body if we want to, with enough social and cultural uh, conditions or uh, with technology, with medical technology. So back in the day, the gender ideology was a a form of feminism that said men and women are identical. Today, it has morphed into the position that the body is so unimportant that a person can reconstruct their personal sexual identity at will using enough uh, medical technology and legal infrastructure to support and defend whatever decision the individual happens to have made. So that's the gender ideology. So those are the three big ideologies, the contraceptive ideology, the divorce ideology, and the gender ideology.
0: Where where are these ideologies being promoted most specifically in public policy today? I mean, we know from foreign aid dollars and data that we're often spending more on uh, contraception aid so to speak, in developing countries than we are clean water initiatives. But where yeah. do you, where do you see um, the sexual state really advancing its ideology through the mechanism of public policy choices? Wow,
2: that's a, I'm really glad you said that about foreign aid. And I and I, I I really wish that the Catholic bishops did more to deal with that point. Um, Because that's been part of U.S. foreign policy now since the Cold War, basically, has been to say there are too many poor people uh, in in foreign countries. And the best way to ensure peace and non-communism in those countries is for us to make sure that there aren't too many people. (laughs) So we flood the place with contraception and condoms and and, uh, abortion on demand and so on and so forth. And actually what that's doing is making people mad at us. I mean, there are people all over the world, countries all over the world, who look at the United States and and the West as, as undermining their traditional values, which their traditional values are much more uh, realistic and uh, and and uh, God fearing and humane than what we're promoting to them. So, so that's one whole area. The whole foreign policy area is 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 huge, uh, but but the other places where you can see it is in the schools. Uh, um, Jason, this is. There's a federal component to it, and then there are local components to it because schools today have a lot of federal money and federal re- regulation involved in them, but also a measure of, of state and local oversight and control and, and so on as well. So what you see in the in the public schools uh, is sexual education which was originally intended to be population-control-oriented education, right? Um, but it, that has morphed into a promotion of the sexual revolution itself, and it has morphed into a gay-affirming, transgender-affirming ideology being taught in the school uh, as an offshoot or, you, know, you could say, a carry-on from all of the old sex education that was taught in the school. And so if you think about that, again, this is something that Normal people didn't go to their school board and say, Oh my goodness, we really must have a class in, in third grade where we teach children how to put condoms on bananas. You know, that's not how that went down, you know. And but but because it's in place and has been in place for so long, uh, people take it for granted, and now that has become the vehicle for even more radical forms of propaganda for the sexual revolution. So that's a huge area and something that at every state and local level uh, people should be monitoring and paying attention to. Every Everybody listening to your program um, could be involved in monitoring the schools in their own locality to see just what the heck is being taught in there. And is it objectionable? And can you get a bunch of parents together and do something and put a stop to it? So that's a very, very big area, Jason.
0: The, the propaganda, as you mentioned, seems relentless and increasingly bizarre. I mean, we have, you know, normal, smart people now saying that uh, doctors arbitrarily assigned a sex to their child at birth. Uh, You talked about the schools. I mean, obviously, on some level, the propaganda is having an effect. But at the same time, we're also seeing signs that, you know, there's starting to be pushback, at least in polling against the imposition of uh, the sexual state and its ideologies. What do you how do you see this? the, The landscape of landscape of propaganda and cultural opinion shaking out right now?
2: Well, I, I think the, the first thing I want to say about that, Jason, is that, as I want your listeners to be aware of just how important propaganda is to the sexual state, because the three ideologies that I mentioned, um, the idea that sex and babies can be separated, the idea that sex and babies can be separated from marriage, the idea that gender, is that, that the sex of the body is not particularly important, all three of those ideas are false, okay? So, the body is really something and it is significant And we are created male and female um, and children actually really truly do need their parents and if adults start shuffling their sex partners and living arrangements around all the time it's going to have serious consequences for children and third sex actually does make babies i know this will be a shock to a lot of people but sex makes babies so what we have is the elites of society absolutely committed to creating a world that cannot be you cannot build a whole society around the idea that sex is a sterile activity it can't be done so in order to make it seem like it can be done you got to have a lot of power you got to have a lot of force you got to have a lot of propaganda to keep it going to suppress the natural feelings that people are going to have that that uh, contradict the ideology to suppress the data that disproves the ideology. You got to you got to be at work all the time convincing people that boys and girls are identical. You know, you just sit in a classroom and look around, and you can figure out the boys and girls are not identical. But so you got to really be leaning on people all the time. And so so this fact that the ideologies are irrational that shows why it's appealing to a certain type of mind because they like the power. That, that I'm absolutely convinced that the appeal of the thing is that it gives so much power to the people who who have power. The people who are already powerful get to do crazier and crazier and wilder and wilder things. I mean, if you, if you can make people say Bruce Jenner is a woman, you can make them say anything. And certain kind of people get a buzz from making people do stuff. Uh, so so, so that's, that explains part of the appeal. And it also explains why you're seeing so much propaganda all the time, because you've got a big job to do to suppress the knowledge that everybody has written into the human heart, you see. So that's the first thing I want people to see, is just start looking around and noticing how many absurd news stories you see, how many patently fabricated, uh, uh, distorted So-called studies, you see, it's everywhere. And so in your mind, what you want to do with that is you want to say, it is not necessary for me to refute every piece of nonsense that that I see on TV or on the Internet. It is necessary for me to identify it as propaganda and ignore it or contradict it or or ridicule it. That's probably the best, you know. But do not feel that I have to somehow treat that as uh, as if it's serious information, because I think that will that frees a lot of energy for people. You know, it sure it sure did for me when I figured it out. It's like, oh, propaganda. Put it over here in this little box. You know, the garbage box. Uh, true ideas. Something else I have to worry about. You know, the overwhelming feeling that people have uh, being able to identify. Propaganda will really help you feel a lot better, and then you can move forward. Then you don't feel overwhelmed and like it's impossible, and so forth.
0: Thanks for that counsel in terms of cultivating serenity and detachment in a culture of (laughs) lies.
2: (laughs) And you know, there there are some mad moms out there who are making progress. I mean, this transgender thing and the drag queen story hour that has got people hopping mad, you know. And so there are people pushing back against that, which is good. I mean, if you didn't push. Back against that, what would it take, you know, to to get you to push back? But but people are winning, you know. People are putting a stop to some of this nonsense. So I would really encourage people, you know, not only support what Jason is doing at the statehouse, but also, you know, look around in your community and take responsibility for for doing projects of your own uh, that need local monitoring, you know, that need local attention. Uh, you can do it. People are doing it all over the country.
0: That's right. We're oftentimes thinking in terms of national politics, but the drag yep. queen story hour happens at the local library, right? So That's, right. That's uh,
2: right. And you know, it's interesting. That's another manifestation of the sexual deep state, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it's, it's the same thing going on everywhere. Okay. And so you ask yourself, what the heck? How, how did every library in America come up with the same idea at the same time? What is going on here? Well, if you look at it, you will find out the, the American Librarians Association, is actively promoting that thing. So that means that if you're a librarian, your professional organization is involved in promoting this. And you may not realize that that's what your professional organization is doing, but I would call on you to get involved in your professional organization and use whatever um, influence you might have as a professional librarian to, to try to steer this thing Away from some of this more destructive type of activity, and, and I'm sure you can see this as an attorney. Your 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 background is in law. Many professions have been corrupted by the sexual revolutionary ideology. You know, medicine and law, and a lot of the academic subjects.
0: Psychology.
2: Yeah, yeah, just 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 corruption trying to accommodate or promote this ideology that that really can't be done you know i mean the endocrinologist the pediatricians you know when, it, when a guy stands up and says you know no you can't tell a child that, that you can't tell tell me that a, a, an eight-year-old is best served by indulging their gender fantasies that's not the way a, a responsible adult treats a child uh, th- th- that per, that person for saying that is uh, is marginalized within their own profession so there's tremendous amount of pressure to conform, tremendous amount of, of, of corruption of the professions, and it's very important uh, that, that, that everybody use their sphere of influence to, to resist this, and, which is not to say that you go spit in the wind or have, you have some kind of uh, futile gesture or something like that. Um, that, that, that you band together with people and make a plan for getting something done. To resist this business because the people on the other side—they've been—they've been working at it and plotting and um, and and strategizing and coordinating for a long time. They've been at it, and so we've got to do the same thing.
0: You point out that the church was quote right all along in opposing these ideologies. Uh, perhaps the the deep sexual state, as you call it, recognizing this and is working overtime to infiltrate the church with these ideologies. How can we counter? Uh, these ideologies while speaking to a culture both in and outside of the Church, and people not necessarily inclined to receive those messages? How do we reach people with compassion, but also at the same time, uh, the importance of truth as well?
2: Well, you know, th- th- there can't be justice without truth, and there can't be true compassion without truth, you know, so we have to stay focused on Christ and his truth here. And, you know, he, he created us, male and female, he made the world, he gave us, a, you know, so some guidelines of how to live. He gave us some rules of how to live, um, and you know, oddly enough, the Son of God knew what he was talking about. What do you think of that?
0: Yeah, amazing.
2: <laughs> you know, I know. How about that? You know, so so. I, and I think it, what's going on inside the church, in some respects, mirrors what's going on in the wider culture, but it, but in another way. The church—the the battlefield inside the church is, is more significant, because the, the advocates of, of the sexual revolution would like nothing better than to neutralize the church. Because, let's face it, the Catholic Church is the last man standing, so to speak, that has an institutional, organized resistance to this uh, ideology. And of course, many people, so we've got so many people inside the church who have either capitulated or who have actively embraced the sexual revolution that our witness is not nearly as strong as it needs to be. But nonetheless, in the catechism and in the history of the church, we still have this stance of sex as a natural reality and marriage as a natural reality created by God for good and humane purposes, and all of that's being undermined. We And so the advocates of, of the sexual revolution are, are, do have always understood that the Catholic Church was their biggest opponent. They have always understood that, right? And so um, it's important for us, as, as Catholics, uh, to use all the resources at our command to, uh, te- to spread our teaching and to uh, uh, reach out to people. I would say uh, that one thing people should do is to educate themselves about the theology of the body, uh, which is Pope John Paul II's philosophical response to materialism, you know, to philosophical materialism, philosophical dualism that separates the mind from the body and all of that. Uh, and so at the deepest level, he was trying to deal with it. So we need to implement that in every way that we can. And, you know, you you might want to have that at your parish school. You know, the diocese might want to say, you know, our family life education is going to be based on one of these Theology of the Body programs. Um, that, that would be a very effective A foundational kind of counter witness to what is going on in in, in the culture around us. And it goes without saying that our sexual abusers need to be dealt with with all the force of civil law, canon law, and public outrage, period. We need to lead the charge on that. No excuse making about that stuff.
0: Dr. Morse, thank you for your powerful witness in the public arena and for joining us here today. Our listeners can find out more about Dr. Morse and her work through the Ruth Institute. That website is ruthinstitute.org. You'll find information there on how to order a copy of her book, The Sexual State How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. Dr. Morse, thanks for joining us today. God bless you and your work. Thanks, Jason. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect the Catholic faith and your work as a missionary disciple in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. And now we're going to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit, about issues affecting public life today. Kit, what is in the mailbag segment for this week?
1: So earlier this summer, Governor Tim Wills signed into law a bill that makes wage theft in Minnesota a felony. During the legislative session, the Minnesota Catholic Conference wrote a letter of testimony in support of this bill. So our question today is sort of two-part. First of all, Jason, can you explain to our listeners what exactly is wage theft? Maybe some examples of that. And then secondly, why did the church take a stance in support of this bill?
0: Well, wage theft, people scratch their heads and say, well, how is that even possible, right? You'd think that people look at their paychecks and know what they've contracted and signed up for. Um, But it happens in a number of ways. Here are some examples and and concrete ways that wage theft is going on uh, in our society today. Hours shaved off a paycheck. Uh, people being forced to work off the clock, people not being paid overtime, people being paid less than promised, even below minimum wage sometimes, people are paid in cash and gift cards, people often being misclassified as independent contractors. So wage step happens in a number of ways, and we were proud to support bipartisan legislation that strengthened uh, employer requirements uh, to make sure that employees were protected. Now, normally, um, employers have to pose post in their office, labored various forms of labor laws, Um, But these go above and beyond what any other state has done in providing reporting uh, requirements and at the same time making sure that in pay stubs and in other materials, wage uh, and hourly information and things like that, and there are clear mechanisms uh, to make sure that employees are protected from wage slips. So employers have to put a series of pieces of uh, protocol in place to make sure their employees are being protected. Oftentimes, employees don't Uh, say anything about these things because they're in fear of retaliation or losing their jobs. So one of the things the legislation does is also beef up enforcement of wage theft through the attorney general's office. So people, um, you know, because of the way in which good work is often tough to come by in some instances, people are in fear of retaliation. They don't want to report some of these small slights that can add up both for the worker, but also for the employer trying to skim from the top. And we talk about on this show often the commodification of human persons and what uh, deeper way to commodify people than just to treat people as a wage slave. And uh, as a uh, Bellock and Chesterton called uh, folks sometimes living in this type of economy. And so the, the church has understood um, the dep- deprivation of a laborer of his or her just wages is one of the sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance, a deep and grave sin. And so if we can put in basic protections uh, for workers, uh, to ensure that they receive the wages that they're justly entitled to, that that's an important element of public policy. Oftentimes, good public policy uh, creates a floor under which, um, you know, employers can't go or basically minimum protections. Now, in a perfect world, Um, where employers were doing their job to provide uh, workers with just wages, you wouldn't need state intervention. But sometimes state intervention can be justified to ensure that there are basic protections for workers in place. So we are proud to support that um, bipartisan legislation that was signed into law uh, earlier this summer. And if you do have Uh, concerns about wage theft, if you're being affected by wage theft, then you can contact the Attorney General's office and they have a special link on their website on Attorney General Ellison's website, and they're being very proactive in enforcing wage theft violations. Again, if you've had hours shaved off your paycheck, you're forced to work off clock, you're misclassified as an independent contractor, these are some things to think about. There may be legal protections for you. So ensuring the dignity of workers and labor is a cornerstone of Catholic social teaching and why we were glad to support that legislation during the 2019 session.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you so much for kind of delving into that, helping people understand what is really possibly affecting them directly. We have just a couple more minutes. So before we go today, listeners, we want to give you a couple practical tips on how you can start living out your faith as a faithful citizen. Each week, we'll provide you with these tips. Jason, what have you got for us in this week's bricklayer segment?
0: Legislators and even congresspersons are more accessible than we often are led to believe, and uh, especially um, at the Uh, local level, people and legislators and public officials are very, very accessible. Congresspersons often seem less accessible, but one of the ways that we can, in fact, encounter them and have a conversation with them and let them know what we think about issues are through town halls. And during the August recess, uh, uh, Congress often breaks during August, uh, congresspersons and senators often come home to their district and meet with people, hold town halls. Town halls are a great way to have that encounter, to have that in- interaction, and have that conversation. And following a congressper your congressperson on social media, signing up for their email list, and hearing about when they're doing their town halls, then going to participate in those is a great way in which congresspersons can get out of the bubble of the the district, the beltway as we call it, and have real encounter and relationship and hear about what you think about important questions. And and we often emphasize how local politics is often overlooked in favor of national politics. Well, especially if national politics are something that you're particularly interested in, then this is a great way to interact with your congressperson. So sign up for your congressperson's email list. Maybe you don't even know who your congressperson is. It's a great uh, opportunity to find that out. Sign up for their email list and it attend a town hall during the August recess.
1: Wonderful. And if you need to find out how to contact your congressperson or even who they are, you can go to mncatholic.org forward slash action center. We've got a directory there.
0: That's all the time we have for today, but don't forget you can help others bring the Catholic faith into public life by com- becoming a sponsor of our show. It's a great opportunity for businesses and organizations to advertise to a core audience of committed disciples. Let listeners know you support bringing the Catholic faith into the public arena by emailing us at show at mncatholic.org, show at mncatholic.org for sponsorship opportunities. Again, remember to be a part of our mailbag segment. Uh, by sending your questions to show at mncatholic.org, and you can follow up on any past episodes you've missed of The Bridge Builder Show through our website, mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks again for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder Show. We'll begin back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, have a blessed weekend.